It's Wednesday, January 16th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. There seems to be another space race on our hands. While the U.S. is working to send astronauts into space again and establishing commercial flights, China has ventured to the far side of the moon. Already an accomplishment getting there, China's lunar lander has successfully sprouted cotton plants, marking the first time humans have grown plants on the lunar surface. Lauren Grush, science reporter at The Verge, joins us for more on this achievement. Next, YouTube has taken a page out of the Tinder handbook and now lets you swipe through videos on its mobile app so you can endlessly watch videos, they hope. Eleanor Cummins, assistant editor at Popular Science, joins us for a project two years in the making which is known to employees by its internal name, Swipey Watch. Finally, you've been hearing a lot about freshman Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and a lot of talk about a Green New Deal. We'll get ready to hear a lot more. It is a new proposal to decarbonize the American economy, create jobs, and tackle climate change. Mike Grunwald, senior writer for Politico magazine, joins us to talk about what a Green New Deal looks like and lessons learned from the past. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. As soon as the lander landed in early January, they injected water into this canister, and it seems like the cotton seeds inside the canister did successfully grow. Doesn't sound like anything else did, but that's still a, quite a feat given the fact that you know the lunar environment is not a very inviting place. Joining us now is Lauren Grush, science reporter at The Verge. We kind of have a new space race on our hands. Everybody is uh, doing a lot more exploration in space than we have, you know, in the past few years. The U.S. obviously uh, we're making all sorts of milestones, uh, videotaping things billions of miles away. Everybody's planning for action on Mars. China just sent their big lunar lander and rover to the far side of the moon. That was one of the big news. And China's still making more news on that front. They just successfully sprouted uh, cotton on the moon. People have grown flowers and other things in space orbit, but never there on the moon. What do we know about that? It's just a tiny experiment that the China Shangha 4 lander carried to the far side of the moon. It's a little canister that has six different species of biological materials. So they have seeds from potato and cotton, and there's also fruit fly eggs in there. As soon as the lander landed in early January, they injected water into this canister, and it seems like the cotton seeds inside the canister did successfully grow. Doesn't sound like anything else did, <laughs> but that's still a, quite a feat given the fact that, you know, the lunar environment is not a very inviting place for plants, right? You know, they're in a vacuum. It's wildly different temperatures, a, a higher radiation environment, different gravity. So this is definitely really cool. Now, so let's get a few things straight because, uh, you know, headlines are often misleading. And if you don't read through some of these stories, you can get it confused. So a headline would say uh, successfully sprouts cotton on the moon. It's in a canister in a controlled environment. It's not like the lander put the cotton seeds in, into the lunar ground and then started growing there. Right. Yeah. No, this is not grown in the lunar regolith or soil is what you call it. This is a very, very preliminary step. And there's still quite a ways to go if we actually want to start growing crops on the moon, for instance. We don't even know if that's possible yet. But this is very intriguing that the fact that we were able to put something up there on top of the ground and grow something in that. We've never done, we've never even attempted anything like that before. So this is definitely another big first for China. Everybody's saying that all these experiments for China right now are precursors to 
making some type of lunar base, uh, something where a research lab that they can build there. And they've said that these things that they took, they said that uh, potatoes could be a main source of food for space explorers. Cotton could be used for clothing. They have rapeseed that they're trying to grow also that could be a source of oil for them. So these are all things that they're trying to get in gear for a possible base they could build there. Right. But let's go back to what we were saying earlier. This is all very, very preliminary. And the fact that only one little bitty piece of cotton was able to grow, <laughs> right, right. you know, no, there's still a great deal that needs to be done testing wise before we can even think about growing crops like that. But yeah, I mean, this is eventually where they're headed. They have very ambitious plans for the moon. After this mission, they hope to do a lunar sample return and eventually leading up to a base in the next decade or so. China is taking each step at a time to flesh out their lunar exploration plan. They said they want to see if they can use the soil to build structures using 3D printing technology. So they're having very ambitious plans. It just seems like they're a little late into the game, but everybody's starting to to, uh, ramp up their space efforts, the United States, Europe, Russia, and China as well. For sure. And I think we can say that China is late, but they're also being very methodical in their approach. They have a very long-term plan when it comes to exploring the lunar surface. And it's been slow, but they've been incrementally getting closer and closer and making all of these big firsts. And eventually, you know, they might be able to return a sample from the far side of the moon someday. They have this satellite that's close to the moon that can act like a relay. The idea of sending more spacecraft to the far side of the moon isn't out of the question. So I think they're just slowly, gradually building the infrastructure that they need in order to explore the moon more in depth. We've been hearing that this year is going to be a big year for a lot of different aspects of space exploration. So we're still in the first month and we've already heard a a bunch of news. It'll be exciting to see how the whole year develops. Lauren Gresh, science reporter at The Verge. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. They're just trying to make the platform easier. And you know what that translates to, right, is people spending more time on the site. If it's harder to leave than it is to stay, you're suddenly getting, you know, way more time on these YouTube videos. So with this kind of gestural experience of swiping instead of tapping, it seems that it's a lot energetically easier for the user. Joining us now is Eleanor Cummins, assistant editor at Popular Science. We're going to be talking about YouTube and some changes that they're making. They're unveiling their own take on the swipe. Some people might refer to it as the Tinder swipe, just kind of that gesture where you can swipe with your finger to move on to the next person or the next thing. YouTube is using this so you can move on to the next video now. And the whole effort is to keep you there longer and watch more videos. What do we know about this change that's coming? About 70% of YouTube's users, and I think this is incredible, come through their mobile app. So a lot of people are on their phone having to point around on this really small screen and tap through videos. What they decided would be easier is to do this kind of gestural swiping. And so they've implemented that and it's going to be a slow rollout. It started on Monday and it should be reaching everyone over the next few weeks. And the idea is that you can swipe left to see the video you were just watching on your phone, or you can swipe right to see the next video that's recommended in your YouTube queue. Mobile viewing is really changing how a lot of websites are doing everything. People use their phones for so much. There's times when I'm doing research at home on my laptop, but let's say I need to reference a quick video or something. I'll pull my phone out just to look at that quick YouTube so I don't have to like change the layout of what I'm doing on my laptop. So 70% of uh, all this viewership on mobile seems about right. It's funny because they're changing. Usually you'd have to you know click exactly the link that you want or click back or something like that, just kind of tapping. 
And there's research that suggests that all of this swiping is just a lot easier and people tend to just gravitate towards it more naturally. Right. When I was talking with the YouTube design team, you know, they really emphasized how they're just trying to make the platform easier. And you know what that translates to, right, is people spending more time on the site. If it's harder to leave than it is to stay, you're suddenly getting, you know, way more time on these YouTube videos. So with this kind of gestural experience of swiping instead of tapping, it seems that it's a lot energetically easier for the user, which I think kind of makes sense. Like if you're thinking about when you have to tap and you have to hit this very narrow part of your phone screen, right? It's really prescribed. You go back and forth sometimes if you're trying to figure out, does it want, you know, like the pad of my finger? What's going to get this task done? You click the wrong thing and it takes you the video you don't want to watch. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just a mess. Whereas with swiping, it's engaging a larger part of the screen, which I think is really intuitive, right? Like you're just aiming for like the left or the right side and it's going to register that really broad stroke. And so they have found, you know, that this is something that in research people really like and they think that it's going to be able to drive more time on YouTube. They said that this was about two years in the making. So this is something they've been planning for a long time now. The concern here, right, is that because so many people are coming to their content via the app, that it needs to be a really smooth rollout and they need to be really confident that it's going to work. So they started throwing this idea around more than two years ago, according to the design team, and they really started to take action within the last two years. So it's a really complicated and iterative process, right? Like you're constantly undoing the work you've done. So they had all of these different concepts or how they wanted it to go, but then, you know, some of them were just absolutely terrible and prototypes. So you go back to the drawing board and then eventually they were able to take a few really solid concepts to beta testers and they were able to move forward on the swipe that you are going to be seeing on your phone soon. Employees had a funny name for this internally. They called it Swipey Watch. <laughs> I thought that yes, was kind of funny. Yes, that was their little nickname for it. <laughs> they had some other stuff that they've been rolling out to in recent years. Uh, the other one was called Flexi Watch, which would just, the uh, you know, it was a different aspect ratios on how it would fit on your screens and whatnot. But it's kind of funny, the little names that they, that they have for these. Yeah, they obviously are having such a great time with all of this. They have these funny nicknames for it. And then, you know, they were also talking about how with UX design, you obviously want to talk to your users and you want to make sure that it's working for them. And in the case of YouTube, like part of their usership are the people who are creating content. So the video makers. So, you know, they were also talking about how while they couldn't name the specific YouTubers, they had a great time talking with some of their favorite celebrities about whether or not these new designs work for them. The reason why this change from YouTube is so interesting to me is because companies always have to adapt to the way users are using the products now and they're making it easier for you to stay there. So they're playing a little bit of psychology. They have to tweak it to stay fun and new and innovative. Everybody uses YouTube for, you know, mundane things, for research, for all sorts of stuff. A lot of times people are resistant to change. I think about when Instagram updated their uh, settings and (laughs) brought that horizontal scrolling, you know, it was a mistake, but they were going to be testing it. And a lot of people said that it's on the horizon. So you got to get ready for it, basically. But people are so resistant to some changes sometimes. And that's why this thing is so interesting to me. Definitely. Yeah, we've reported a bit on the situation at Instagram, because as I wrote in an article, that used to be such like a serene space on the internet, right, where you could go for just some really nice photos from your friends. And in the last like year and a half or two years, it's just become this like insane fun house where there are like new features every day. And there's a lot of good research backing up their decisions, even though people really hate it the usership is rising. So it's this really strange conflict 
concept where we say things and then UX designers are able to show we do something else entirely. A lot of it is we're going to make the changes and then just get used to it. And later on down the road, you you kind of end up loving it. So I'm sure YouTube is going to have a lot of success with this new change. Eleanor Cummins, assistant editor at Popular Science. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. inevitable that we are going to create jobs. It's inevitable that we're going to create industry. And it's inevitable that we can use the transition to 100% renewable energy as the vehicle to truly deliver and establish economic, social, and racial justice in the United States of America. Joining us now is Mike Grunwald, senior writer at Politico magazine. He's also the author of The New New Deal, the hidden story of change in the Obama era. It's about the Obama stimulus that was passed in 2009. A lot of ideas been floating around since Democrats have taken charge of the House. One of them in particular, one of the Congresswomen, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, she's just skyrocketed in popularity. And she's also floating around her deal, the Green New Deal. And it's one of those ideas that's gotten a lot of traction. And you're going to be hearing a lot more of it as climate laws addressing climate change are going to be featuring prominently in Democrats' deals there. Tell us a little bit about the Green New Deal and what it's all about. The phrase Green New Deal was first coined by the New York Times columnist Tom Friedman back in 2007. And he just wrote a column the other day saying, wow, this is so exciting that uh, people are finally paying attention to this. The idea never took off when I first floated it. Um, (laughs) uh, But I just wrote a piece about how, in fact, in 2009, The Obama stimulus, which was best known as this kind of $800 billion effort to keep the United States out of a depression and save the economy, it also included what was then a totally unprecedented $90 billion for essentially a kind of prototype Green New Deal. It had wind power, solar power, geothermal power, biofuels, clean coal plants, electric vehicles. It really was order of magnitude increases in efforts to try to move the United States away from fossil fuels. And this new Green Deal uh, kind of piggybacks off of that or expands on that really to make it a really central part of legislation. Well, I think that's right. I mean, we don't know what the details are going to be yet, but certainly in in 2009, there was an economic emergency because we were losing 800,000 jobs a month. And right now, there's more and more of a sense that there's a real climate emergency where, you know, you have the last five years have been like the five hottest years ever. And you're starting to see the increased bigger storms, the wildfires in the West, the increased drought, where this is really starting to hit home. One thing that was interesting was there's sort of the split in the Democratic Party between more left insurgents like Alexandria Cortez, as you mentioned, and some of the groups that are supporting her, but then also more establishment Democrats like Nancy Pelosi and a lot of the leadership and Kathy Castor, who's going to be in charge of the Select Committee on Climate to look at the Green New Deal. And one thing that was interesting is that both groups seem to say that the the stimulus from 2009 is really kind of their inspiration when they look at what they want to do, but it's also a cautionary tale. Because while the stimulus was very successful in really jumpstarting America's transition towards clean energy economy, particularly with wind, solar, electric vehicles, and LED lighting, it was also extraordinarily unpopular. And so they're thinking this time, how can we get not only the policy right, but the politics as well? But how do you get to this? If there's a few divisions within the Democratic Party, they all have to come to a consensus about this. It seems like Republicans don't really care about climate change or taking action there. 
The president has been very vocal about opposing some of these reports that have come out talking about climate change. They're going to have to be looking beyond that, or is this something that they can try to get done? I mean, it just seems like it has no hope of passing in the current situation. Well, I think that's right. Maybe they won't say that publicly, but they will certainly acknowledge that for the time being, this is mostly a messaging operation and really preparation for, you know, and there what they hope will be, you know, a Democratic president and a Democratic Senate in 2021. Obama passed the stimulus literally his, his first month in office. And in some ways, it was the most far-reaching piece of legislation he passed in his entire eight years because so many of these ideas were ready to go when he got there. And so I think that a lot of these fights over are they going to shoot for 100% renewable energy or is it going to be 100% low carbon energy? Are they going to raise taxes to pay for this? Or are they not going to bother trying to pay for this? These are all kind of debates that don't matter very much in terms of the substance of what's going to pass Congress in 2019 and 2020, but could matter a lot in terms of what if there is a democratic control of Washington in 2021. And at that point, there's going to be a push for action. It's about the long game. It is about the messaging operation. As you said, President Obama passed it so quickly, it was hard to get ahead of some of the blowback that resulted from it. So if they're laying the groundwork for it now, you get a few years on it, then it's going to be a little, you'll be able to sell it a little bit easier. And I think you you refer to this a little bit, is, is that certainly in 2009, you had Republicans who were absolutely in unison, just savaging the stimulus as this porculous boondoggle that was thrown money into the cylinders of the world. While the Democrats really had a very divided message, nobody was kind of like, this is great. There were some people saying it's too small, some people saying it's too big, some people saying it's not enough for infrastructure and kind of traditional stimulus stuff. It just led to this kind of cacophony where Republicans were saying this thing stunk and Democrats were kind of also sort of saying it stunk. And the public very quickly, you know, even though they had been favorably disposed to the idea of, of a new New Deal back then, they quickly turned against it and thought that this was just a big boondoggle. And I think the danger that is that this could happen again. Right now, the polling for a Green New Deal is amazing. It's got like 80% support, including 64% of Republicans. But again, Fox News and the Republican Party hasn't started trashing it yet. And there are big divisions in the Democratic Party where if you look at AOC's website, what she's proposing, it's not just a Green New Deal that's going to fix the climate problem. She also sees this as a vehicle to really redress all the what she sees as the inequalities and problems of the capitalist economy, where she wants to have a universal job guarantee. And there's in one clause that says, like, this committee should also do universal health care if that appropriate. How much power does Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez have with all this? I know she's pushing it, but as presidential contenders start making their platforms, things start getting worked out. How much power is she going to have? Uh, I mean, because she's a freshman a representative right now. So uh, what? Oh, what yeah, is she she's be? a backbencher. And you can already see the kind of like establishment Democrats are starting to crap all over her and essentially tell her to get in line and she should know her place and she doesn't represent the mainstream. But I think you kind of have to say hats off, right? I mean, what she has done is just extraordinary. You know, she's been in Congress for a couple of weeks and she's already made it a top tier Democratic issue that essentially every Democrat running for president is going to have to have a position on this Green New Deal. Mike Grunwald, senior writer at Politico magazine, also the author of The New New Deal, The Hidden Story of Change in the Obama Era. Thank you very much for joining us. Oh, my pleasure.
That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. Daily Dive.